Every single nonprofit was started by a remarkable person, a person who in my mind has special powers, maybe like x-ray vision. They look at society and how it operates. They see injustice. They see people who need a helping hand. They see gaps in how we care for each other. They see gaps most of us miss. And the second characteristic of these founders makes them uniquely and uniquely powerful. They can't sit idly by. They are compelled to do something, to do something. They become fierce dogs with bones. And before you know it, there's a mission, vision, and a 51C3. If you ever want to learn about founders, I encourage you to read a copy of a book called One Day All Children, the memoir of Teach for America founder Wendy Kopp. In the early chapters, reveal this x-ray vision and this fierce determination. She began her work in 1989. She remained CEO for over two decades, and today, 30 years later, she's still on the board. Now, I got to think that was a pretty tricky transition with lots of landmines. But TFA is clearly a very strong organization today and managed through that transition without weakening the organization. Maybe they had outside support, like someone like my guest today, because this is her wheelhouse, preparing founders and the organizations they found for a transition out. So I'm hoping that talking about the Marx Brothers does not date me, and that instead it illustrates that I believe in the classic and the iconic. So here's a famous song Groucho sings that nails the push-pull of the founder. If you want the full experience, the YouTube link is below. But have a listen, and then we'll dig in. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, author, blogger, and founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab gets it. She is here to help. Rachel serves as practice leader and senior consultant for leadership transition planning and organizational strategy engagements at Markham, a worldwide accounting and consulting firm with a focus on leadership transitions and search services. Markham has more than 500 nonprofit leadership search and transition engagements under its belt, and the results speak for itself. More than 90% of CEOs hired through these transitions from Markham stay in their roles for three or more years. Rachel's a senior consultant in their nonprofit practice and specializes in organizations led by founders and long-tenured CEOs. She's a skilled change management consultant for nonprofit organizations and philanthropic institutions. Her entire professional path has been all about leadership development in in the sector. She's worked to strengthen back office systems to help organizations evaluate the effectiveness of their efforts. And she's also developed a national coaching program for leaders of color. Rachel, I'm really glad you're here. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Joan, for having me. So I just spoke about what makes founders unique and special, at least from my point of view. And you and I have both spoken about how much we admire them. Um, What do you see as special? Do you agree with me? Anything you would add to what makes a founder special on the positive side? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I've devoted my entire career pretty much to either working for or working with founders. And I just think they have incredible instincts, um, oftentimes instincts that you can't replicate, incredible passion, commitment for the work. And so I think they're this kind of unique asset that we have in our sector. Do you, um, I often think that founders get this bad rep. And I believe that founders hear this word founder syndrome a lot and feel that they've been dismissed in some way for what they bring to the table. So uh, talk to me about... 
what people mean when they say founders syndrome. Yeah, I think, you know, founders bring a certain perspective to the organization that sometimes you, you can't really name, you can't put your finger on. Um, oftentimes that's a result of the instincts that we just talked about. Um, and, and sometimes they can't even explain <laughs> um, <laughs> some of the decisions that they make. I think also that coupled with the um, passion, sometimes the incredible attention to detail, sometimes just their own commitment to their own legacy mm-hmm. um, tends to give people the perspective that founders are not as open as they would like. Um, but I would say that they're, they're very misunderstood. Yeah, I think they are very misunderstood. One of the questions I get asked a lot um, and this, we talk about this, you and I talked about this, that founders and long tenured executive directors have very, very similar characteristics. Um, uh, but let's stay with founders for just a second. I get asked this question. I, I don't know. Do I have founder syndrome? How, 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 do, how do I know I have it? What are the telltale signs? Yeah, so, so I, I, there are a few. I mean, I think there is the the inability to share leadership. I, mm-hmm. I think our nonprofits are extremely complex. The external environment that they're working in is extremely complex. And when a leader wants to hold everything so closely or use themselves as that measuring stick for everybody else, um, that can be a, a telltale, telltale sign. Um, I think when everything is funneled through a leader mm-hmm. as well, that can be a sign. So I work with a lot of executives that have 14, 15, 16, 17 direct reports <laughs> um, <laughs> because of this need, again, to kind of hold information. Um, and, and then I think, you know, a lot of it comes to kind of of, of openness and willing to, to share and, and open up leadership styles. So that, that can sometimes be a telltale sign of, of founder syndrome. Do you see that sometimes a founder gets set in their particular vision and here they are, these people who have seen this gap and they have established an organization that's actually really poised to change the world, but they themselves end up becoming really change resistant? Yeah. And, you know, it's sometimes, of course, we have a situation where there's sometimes that organizations outgrow their founders. Exactly. Yeah, sure. And the skill sets, the founder may not have the skill sets to take the organization where it needs to be. But, But I also think that, you know, sometimes I work with founders who've been in the role for 30, 40 years. Mm. Um, they've seen a lot, including history repeating itself. Yeah. Um, and, and sometimes we confuse their inability to go a certain direction. Um, we confuse um, the fact that they've seen this tide before <laughs> with their unwillingness to be open-minded. And, and sometimes it's not that they're unwilling to be open-minded, but they have been in the organization for such a long time. They have incredible instincts and sometimes they're not wrong. Right. And so the, the trick is to try and kind of find that middle ground. Uh, I, I'm sure that there are founders on this call that are say, uh, on this pod, listening on this podcast. They're just saying, you go, Rachel Gibson. That's true. <laughs> I have seen it all. And sometimes maybe I'm a little resistant, but most often it's because 
I've been around the block more than just a few times. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, I think that founders struggle with knowing when to go. Yeah. And, um, and I know that you do a lot of work that helps founders think that through. And one of the things I've really admired about the work that you do is you work with organizations. It isn't just like, okay, it's time to make a switch. Let's call Rachel Gibson because Mm -hmm. it's a long process. And um, when a founder uh, says, "I I think it might be time to go and reaches out to you, how do you help them think that through? Right. So, yeah, I'm working with organizations sometimes three, four years before that founder leaves. Um, There's no magic bullet to it. I mean, you know, what I will say in that first conversation is that there needs to be a level of preparing the organization and what does the organization need to do to be prepared? And then what do you need to do to prepare yourself personally? Um, it's usually easier for them to be able to answer the first question, which is my organization needs to do this, this, this to be able to thrive on a new leadership. It's fuzzier when they're thinking about their own kind of personal needs. So, so some of the things I've asked is, you know, are you personally fulfilled? Would Mm -hmm. you, you know, is 80% of their week, are they doing things that, truly jazz them that are truly meaningful in the work um is has the external environment shifted so much that they feel like the organization needs a different skill set Mm. Um, and maybe sometimes it's not even a different skill set. Sometimes, you know, founders will say, I've been in this work for 30 years and I'm just tired. Right. So while I have the skill set, I may just not have the interest or energy to carry things forward. Um, And then the other really big and important, and I would say the most important factor is what's impacting their personal lives. So Mm. are there things in their personal lives that are drawing them that they believe um, is more meaningful to them than leading the organization at this time? And I often will suggest that founders or long-tenured executives hire a leadership coach, so somebody who will work with them specifically on the personal aspects. A consultant like myself, you know, we work on the organizational readiness, but but they really need to talk to somebody who can help them through um, that personal transition that they need to make. I, I... That seems so smart to me. I have worked with so many people who are in their jobs and have no ability to envision what that next thing would be. And right. that, that that paralyzes them to stay because they can't draw that picture of what's next. And some of that's about the sort of my identity is this organization, but some of it's also just I need somebody to help me think about who I am if I am not the founder of this organization. Correct. And I think also a lot of it depends on life stage. So for people who are closer to retirement, there's that financial question. Can Absolutely. I afford yep. to leave my organization? And, and in situations like that, I say, you know, you need to talk to the financial planner. You need to, to, to kind of map it out. Um, and for others, if they are younger and may have another career, it's what do I even do with my life after this? Like you've been an executive director for 20 years. Like what does one do? <laughs> right. <laughs> this. 
Um, and I think some of those personal decisions are oftentimes what makes it very hard for a founder to decide kind of next steps. I, um, there's, there's another thing that's at play with this two, these two categories of leaders, and that is um, a sort of this, t- over time, you develop this uh, narrative that is um, honestly reinforced by your board mm-hmm. and potentially by your donors and stakeholders and staff that this organization is you and it will not it will not, it'll crumble without you. And um, you've talked a lot about how founders have to think that through and that they have to change the narrative. I'd love for you to to talk mm-hmm. that through with people because I found that really powerful. Yeah, it, it is absolutely important for founders to really start to verbalize to board and staff that the organization, not only will they survive, but they will thrive Mm -hmm. under new leadership. And no consultant, nobody else can like really share that message in a meaningful way, like the founder or the long tenured executive can. Yep. And depending on how closely, um, people, it depends on how much anxiety exists around that person's potential departure. If there is a significant amount of um, anxiety and worry, it may, and and if the identity of the founder is so tied to that executive, it may take even three years for you to really deprogram Mm -hmm. your board. And there, there are certain action steps. So there is the verbalizing it, but there are things like Bring leadership team into board meetings. Um, give them more space. Um, put people out front in front of donors so that there are more faces representing the organization because the best legacy that you can leave is to know that you have cultivated an amazing team of amazing pipeline of leaders within your organization. Um, so there, there are actionable things that you can do to not be so front and center that that goes a long way in a transition process. You also have to really be thinking about how to exercise the strength and governance capacity of your board, right? Because over time, over those 20 years or 10 years or 30 years, the board gets pretty accustomed to sort of following the lead. And... I have seen people start to actually engage their boards in different ways that may in fact feel quite uncomfortable, right? Because it's not how it usually has been rolling to, to give board members meaty things to do to exercise their muscles so that they are a stronger board at the time that um, the transition actually occurs. Yeah. Yeah. So there are a few things. So we know and we see time and time again that many times founder boards do not do performance reviews for for their founders. Um, Oh, yeah. 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 And I say it and it's awkward. I get it. But I say that is um, an important exercise. You don't want to experiment on a new executive. It also gives a board an opportunity to really have a sense of the work and the CEO's role. Another piece that is critical is in many, with many boards, the, the founder is at the hub 
and all the board members are kind of spokes of that that center. And so whatever a founder and in, in, in partnership with the board chair can do to build relationships across board members. So making sure that that relationships are solidified between board members outside of that founder, that's incredible because um, you can have the best board on paper in terms of skill sets and experiences, but if they don't have the, the relationship um, then it, it's all for not in a, in a transition. There's a, um, a book that <clears throat> I'm having a, a board read that is kind of transforming from one kind of board to the, the kind of board the organization really needs. And we're reading a couple of chapters from a book called Governance as Leadership, which I strongly recommend, um, almost as strongly as my own book. And, um, <laughs> And it talks about sort of the secret sauce about a high-performing board is about its its ability to see itself as a cohesive mm-hmm. entity, right? Not as a collection of individuals. And right. I, I do believe, I mean, I have another client that can't push their board chair to get their board meetings to happen in person and they happen on the mm-hmm. phone and they don't understand what a liability that is in creating this notion that this is an important engine in flying this organizational jet. I've seen lots of some of the hardest, worst horror stories related to transitions have occurred because that cohesion uh, amongst board members didn't exist. People think it's the new person that came in that, that, went great, you know, just just blew up the place. But but in many cases, it points back to a board that did not have solid dynamics and weren't cohesive. And the reason and the reason that that's a problem is that they can't have difficult conversations together. Right. So that so maybe it's somebody says, well, of course, the founder has to remain involved in an integral way. And then there's someone else that says, I was on another board where that happened. And that was a disaster. And because they don't have a relationship, they're at odds with one another. And, um, you know, I often say this, if I could give one training to like every human being, I think I'd start in grade school, it would be on training people to not fear having tough conversations and to have them. But the only way to really have them is to feel like you're in relationship with somebody. Yeah. 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 And, and the tension, the anxiety, the fear, all of those things that boards experience during these transitions don't necessarily bring out the best in everyone all the time. Correct. Um, talk to me about, um, talk to me about the culture of the organization, right? So there's, you know, with a founder, a long-term, uh, tenured executive director, uh, sometimes we develop a bit of a sort of a cultish thing that surrounds this particular person. Um, how do you help staff navigate the change and build a healthy culture that's actually ready to embrace the change. Yeah. So one of, I mean, one of the unique aspects of working with organizations led by founders, the founders um, in many cases have cultivated a specific culture that bleeds into every aspect of the organization. Yep. Right. So it, bleeds into how they get money, bleeds into the leadership, et cetera. Um, and, 
And so a lot of it going into that, that before that person leaves, a lot of it is also unpacking that culture. You know, what are the aspects of our culture that we need retained, that we need to strengthen? Let's name that culture. Let's make sure the board understands the aspects of the culture that's been helpful. But also set up an environment where you can also name the aspects of the culture that have probably been harmful, that has not, has not helped or supported the organization's goals and naming that too and talking about that and therefore talking about the type of leadership needed to elevate some of the aspects of the culture that that has not been solid. Um, When conversations, explicit conversations around culture and values do not occur before a leadership change, Mm -hmm. you can get into some big problems because what happens is that somebody's hired without full understanding of the type of culture that exists or somebody's hired without the board considering the kind of culture <laughs> that that um, that person will be stepping into and therefore you have some challenges. Um, there's a couple of specific questions and we are having a really thoughtful conversation about the transitions of founders and long-term executive directors from nonprofit organizations. And as many of us know, this is a, um, this is an issue that is growing in scope and impact as more and more baby boomers retire uh, and um, move on. And so doing this well is so hard and getting it right is so important that we're lucky that there are people like Rachel Gibson and her firm Markham that does uh, not only just a, accounting, but also does consulting with a focus on leadership transition and search services. And Rachel is a senior consultant in the nonprofit practice. And she's just kind of, she's just kind of focused her whole professional career on this notion of founders and long tenured CEOs, um, and has really learned more than a thing or two about change management, um, which is what this is fundamentally all about. Um, and I wanted a, a couple of questions that are more tactical that I suspect listeners want to talk about or would love to hear you talk about, um, what about the what about the founder or the or the executive director who probably ought to go but doesn't know it and the board knows it the sort of this notion that a, a person has sort of overstayed its welcome has his or her welcome and that as a result of that the organization is kind of stuck in neutral not taking advantage of new opportunities um do you get those calls from boards about sort of how do I, how do yeah. I, how do I think about having a conversation like this with, yeah, with my CEO? Here, here's what's funny. They, they call me, but they, they call me usually sometimes three years after um, the initial concerns came up, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, and sometimes when it's like crisis, that's where, again, I, I really push boards to have performance review conversations. And and when I talk about performance reviews, I'm not necessarily saying you need to have a 10-page form. Um, I'm saying dedicated time annually to 
um, reaffirm the strategic priorities of the organization and have focused conversations with the executive about how that person is advancing those priorities and, and have the, the, the person, the, the CEO also talk about um, be self-reflective and talk about how they view their performance. But um, it is best to, to start to have those conversations in a performance conversation rather Smart. than get into a place where you're in crisis mode. I think that's that's absolutely correct. And I, I believe that listeners are saying, oh, I'm supposed to start this whole thing three years out. I'm dealing with a client at the moment. And they said, we'd like you to help us with a founder transition. And this was uh, in August, and I and I said, so when are when is the founder thinking about stepping down? Um, and they said December. And mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, okay, there's there's a lot of work to do. Uh, um, there's a, there's just a lot of work to do. Like that's not a, that's not a lot of time. And yeah. and I don't think people realize how much time it takes. It does, but you know, and I would say in a situation like that, that's where you know, hiring a really solid interim could be yeah. um, the answer. That could, that absolutely could be the answer. And I, um, I want to come back to that, uh, the issue of an interim. Um, here's a question I get asked a lot. Um, is there a way to constructively involve the outgoing founder or executive director in the search process in some way? Yeah, so I, in the search process, I mean, there should always be a conversation with the founder about just the state of the organization, the state of the work. So a question I often ask is, if you were, if you were going to be sticking around for an additional three, four years, what would your priority be? Right. Like what, what, what is I, and also what is your current pain point? Like what is the thing that that's just a pain point? Um, and, and that helps the board get a sense of some of the kind of current tensions in the work, but also, um, what's on the horizon. And sometimes some of those things in the horizon are even outside of an organization's strategic plan. Um, the other piece around a search process is that, um, the founder or outgoing executive should not serve on a search committee at all, but um, they should have an opportunity later in the process to meet with the top two candidates, Um, not for an interview, but in many cases for that candidate to ask questions, hear about history, do their own due diligence, and also for that founder to learn a little bit more about the candidates and be able to offer up some input to the search committee. And then finally, I would say that founder also plays a, a pretty important role in onboarding. Um, mm. There's many ways to do onboarding, but that they um, can play a role in that person's orientation and onboarding into the role. Uh, uh, smart. So I, um, uh, I have a million questions, and I think that there's a, a part two that follows this about the new person that arrives in the mm-hmm. house. And uh, so I'd, I'd very much like to do that. But before, um, before you say yes, because I, I just know you're going to say yes, um, 
I bet there are listeners who are saying, okay, wow. Okay, so I'm supposed to hire somebody three years before somebody leaves. Um, that sounds like it costs a lot of money. Is there, uh, are there lower cost ways to do this? Is there sort of a do-it-yourself way? Um, yeah. Like how do we make this kind of transition service accessible? And is that something that you all at Markham do? Because I, yeah. I would be foolish not to be peddling your wares given how, yeah. um, how gifted you are in this particular field. So there are different ways. I mean, I think every organization, regardless of the size, may be going through some level of capacity building now, right? It could be they're working with a strategic planning consultant, a governance consultant, a finance person. I mean, I think if you're a year, two, three years, you're thinking about transition, think about how you're orienting those other capacity building processes in a way that you're setting the organization up for success under new leadership. You may not be saying that, <laughs> but um, but you know that you have that in the back of your mind. Another piece is if you are leaving within the next, say, year and you do value some external support, um, there are ways that in our practice we do search supports contracts for smaller organizations where... Nice. We may not do the full shebang, but we are there with you step by step and provide consulting to the team. And you, it's like a train the trainer type approach. Oh, that's smart. <laughs> uh, that makes it more meaningful because, you know, we never like to turn anybody away. And we understand that, you know, people's ability to pay is 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 a pretty important factor. But there, there are many ways to structure it. Uh, and I, I just... One of the reasons I wanted people to hear from you today is that I, I want people to understand that this, that this is a challenging period of time and that it's really hard to do without, without outside support. And there are ways to get that, um, that are worth the investment because, uh, doing this transition poorly is costly. It's costly on almost every level from reputational to donor engagement, right? Is that the kind of investment you make in how you do a good transition is a small price to pay against the potential liabilities of doing it wrong, don't you think? Correct. Yeah, I think that's really true. Um, I um, <clears throat> Tell us a little bit about... Um, your organization and um, and sort of re are there resources that we might find on your site or articles we might be able to include sure. as part of this? Sure. So Markham, as you said earlier, um, uh, account predominantly a large professional services firm with a, a big kind of accounting arm, HR arm. Our team specifically focuses on leadership strategy and, and transition management and executive search falls under that. We do an annual um, two, probably twice a year, we do a, a two-day workshop called our Next Steps Workshop that um, where we bring founders and long-tenured executives together in a room to, to really talk about how to prepare themselves personally and professionally and we found that to be a very transformational experience. 
experience for a number of our attendees. Um, so that's a way for people to get a little bit more immersed in the work um, and immersed in thinking through what they need to do. Um, participants usually, sometimes they have no departure timeline. Sometimes they say, I'm leaving in six months and we get everybody in between. So there is something for everybody and it's a great way to just do some peer sharing. I would bet too, I was talking to a founder the other day who said, you know, <laughs> I've I've never left an organization I started before. I don't even know yes. what the, what the choices are I should make that are good ones or bad ones. Uh, or how about this one? Someone said to me, I want to go in front of the board and lobby for the person I think who should have the job. And, and I was talking about how that can, um, that they don't realize how much power and how, how much power they have and how, um, how much undue influence they could put on a board that really needs to own the decision for themselves. And the person said to me, but isn't that what succession planning is about? I said, succession planning is actually setting up an organization so the board can engage in that transition and own that process. That's different from, I have a succession plan and Rachel Gibson is going to be my, my, I'm going to lobby for Rachel Gibson to be my new executive director. So there's even, there's even issues about just sort of the basic glossary of terms and what they mean, which I, which I, you know, I, you know, we're so close to it. We see it all the time, but others, the others, they miss it all together. That's true. And I think, you know, in, in the corporate sector, Succession planning is pick your successor in yeah. many cases. Yes. Um, it's a little bit different with, with, with nonprofits. I would say a situation like that where you pick your nonprofit, you pick your person, you tell your board that can backfire. And it, it oftentimes backfires on that person you picked. So the person you thought you were helping and supporting, um, usually when it, it backfires, um, it, it's on them. But, but I also, I want to make it very clear to people that I also believe in leader development and I am a proponent of internal succession when it's done well. So I have clients who will say a a big value and it's in their strategic plan is our own internal succession, um, cultivating people from within. Yep. Usually the board is aware of that. (laughs) The board is aware of, um, you know, the a potential next in line and there is a a process that that person still goes through a formal process even with interviews that that person goes through internally with the board before I send into that role so it's it's good to have leaders within your organization that you've cultivated that could be the next CEO but um, them being hired needs to be in partnership with the board and and through a process so that leads us to um, what I'd like to have. What I'd like to do, if you're game, is I. Um, there's so many good resources here, and I encourage you to connect with Rachel and the folks at Markham uh, to learn more about their services. What we focused on in this episode is the sort of how do we set up an organization to be ready to handle a transition? How do we think about? How do we help a founder think about 
I love this, changing the narrative. This organization will last. We built something that's built to last. We did that together. And you can do this. You can manage this transition. Um, you know, I founded it. I'm moving on. But we built something that's meaningful, that has impact. You own that. I own that. And it's time for me to move on and add a fresh set of eyes and ears to the process because that will be better for the organization and the folks we serve. Um, but there's a part two that's just waiting here, which is the board has to actually pick somebody new. And um, so what I'd like to do is I would like to say, we'll end this one. So if you just want to learn about founders and you've got what you want out of it, um, uh, which I'm sure you have, um, I can just say thank you to Rachel for this conversation. But if you're very interested in what happens next, stay with us for the second part of this podcast. But what we're going to do here is what uh, the, the part two asks a simple question. How do you successfully follow a founder? What are the components of that? Why is it that so many organizations go through um, what I sometimes jokingly call the transitional girlfriend before they actually remarry? And why does that happen? And can it be avoided? Um, and what are some of the, the sort of landmines and opportunities that that presents? So, um, Rachel, thanks for this conversation. And I look forward to that second part where we dig into how does somebody follow a founder? Rachel, thanks so much for joining us and stay tuned. Joan Gary's obsession with supporting your work takes many forms. Subscribe to her blog at JoanGary.com reaching over 100,000 visitors monthly from over 170 countries. Explore the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, the best online resource for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits at nonprofitleadershiplab.com. Join 15,000 kindred spirits on Facebook at Thriving Nonprofit with Joan Gary. <laughs>